Some farmers pull rocks out of their fields. Some pull tree stumps. Stephanie Monserrate and Marissa Reyes-Diaz had to pull out garbage. A lot, a lot, a lot of trash. Like more of five uh, travels to the landfill full of trash. That's Marissa. Back in 2017 in Dorado, on the northeast coast of Puerto Rico, Stephanie, Marissa, and two others were clearing a makeshift landfill and turning it into something new, a farm. The four of them had pooled their resources together and purchased an 11-acre plot of land, but it was where local people often dumped their garbage. Like a a legal landfill for trash? Yeah, it was like the community's trash land, basically. There is a thing in Puerto Rico that you have to pay for throw away big stuff if you don't have uh, cars to move that to the landfill. So the people is just creative to take out the trash from for the houses. It was difficult work clearing the land, but they stayed motivated. They were inspired to start a farm based on something called agroecology. It's a set of practices that mimics the local ecosystem. Here's Stephanie. We're trying to farm in this holistic way. We're trying to see what the land already has. In this case, trash. But soon they hoped it would grow a diverse range of crops that could both produce high yields and strengthen the ecosystem. They hoped this way of farming could protect food systems in Puerto Rico, an island dependent on the U.S. for food imports. It's also a place at risk of major climate disasters like hurricanes that can disrupt food supplies. And then that disruption came. Korea is the first Category 4 to hit there in nearly a century. 150-mile-an-hour winds ripping buildings apart, knocking out power everywhere. All of the electricity is out tonight. People ordered to stay inside until at least tomorrow amid fears of more massive flooding to come. In September of 2017, two hurricanes, Irma and Maria, battered the island. They destroyed homes and displaced tens of thousands of Puerto Ricans. They caused weeks and months-long blackouts, knocking out electricity, phone, and internet for huge parts of the island, including Stephanie and Marissa. They had no idea if their farm was safe or in ruins. Again, here's Marissa. Like, nobody has communication between us, so I cannot contact Stephanie or Francisco or Jean-Paul that are the members of the collective. So we don't know if we are fine or how everything is going or if our houses are safe, if we can go out of our houses. That was the big issue. First, Irma hit. The flooding and high winds scattered debris for miles. Stephanie remembers coming out of one hurricane and then going right into the other. We already had been like 10 days without electricity and most of the people without water because of Hurricane Irma and Maria came. So, and everything we we worked before, like all the trash we got out, it was back into the land because of the hurricane. Everything was like washed away. And then in the aftermath of the storm, the crumbling building materials, furniture, and garbage made its way back to Stephanie and Marissa's land. People had so many trash from their houses, they were looking somewhere to put it. So yeah, we were basically back to step one. But they focused on the next step forward, cleaning up their land and getting operations up and running. And in the process, they refined a farming practice that could be a key defense against extreme weather and climate disasters.
This is A Matter of Degrees, stories for the climate curious. I'm Dr. Katherine Wilkinson. And I'm Dr. Leah Stokes. In this episode, we're exploring an agricultural method that could be very helpful for improving and protecting food systems in a warming world, and that's agroecology. We'll hear about a collective known as Wakia in Puerto Rico working to clean up the food system as part of this larger worldwide movement and talk to an expert about how agroecology works as a big climate solution. Leah, some of our listeners probably remember that you are an avid gardener and fruit tree connoisseur. Do you want to explain what agroecology is? It's true. I have a bit of a gardening addiction. Uh, I have both a garden plot at my house and an allotment, as they say in Britain, which is another garden plot elsewhere. Very British. (laughs) And uh, agroecology is the idea of bringing ecological principles, you know, thinking about ecosystems, wildlife, climate mitigation, bringing those ideas into our agricultural practices to make agriculture work more in harmony with our communities. And in today's episode, we wanted to dig into this idea. So today's story comes from one of the producers on our show, Dalvin Abuaji. Hi, Dalvin. Hey, Leah. Hey, Catherine. So, Dalvin, let's pick back up from where we left the story. Who are these two Puerto Rican farmers that we heard about at the top of the show, Stephanie and Marissa? Yes, so a couple years earlier, neither one of them would have called themselves a farmer. Stephanie was working in the island's restaurants, and Marissa was working an office job and trying to figure out what to do with her degree in wildlife management. Their careers shifted when they took a six-month agroecology workshop in 2015, They were classmates in that program, which introduced them to some of the practices they use on the farm that they run today. How cool that they took this new path together. Yeah, in that farm, it was a former trash dump, so first they had to clean it up. They had radical plans for the farm, things that would have been unrecognizable to some of the conventional farmers in the area. Instead of working with the newest machinery, they went low-tech, working mostly with their hands and basic tools. They went without synthetic fertilizers that other farmers used to grow their harvest, but degrade the health of the soil over time. Here, maintaining the land in the long term was more important than short-term financial gains. There is nobody giving insecticides to the land. It's just sustained by themselves. It's not, nobody intervening in the, in the forest, and that's what we try to imitate in the, in the agroecology. They called themselves Wakia, which means we in the indigenous Taino language. Obviously, the basic difference would be that we're trying to farm in this holistic way. We're not trying to put ourselves in the land. We're trying to see what the land already has and how we can be successful with our communities. We care for what's happening in the island. We care for what's happening in the agroecology community. We care for what's happening, anything that affects our lands. Wow, they put so much effort into building up this farm, and then hurricanes hit. How did that affect them? Well, frankly, it was a nightmare. See, Puerto Rico's in the hurricane belt, so they faced terrible storms many times before. But the back-to-back hurricanes in 2017, Irma and Maria, were two of the most devastating on record. The people of Puerto Rico spent a long day trapped in their homes, snatching cell phone glimpses of Maria, carving a slow, destructive path. The hurricane made landfall about dawn and quickly ripped roofs off of buildings, tore fences from the ground, 
and unleashed deadly storm surges and 20 inches of rain as it swept across the island and past San Juan. The destruction was immense. Tens of thousands of people were displaced due to the flooding and millions were trapped at home without power. By the end of it, almost 3,000 people died and damages were more than $90 billion. The entire island was in bad shape, but it was especially bad for the island's poorest communities. See, there are a lot of places where people lack the proper deeds or documents to houses built years ago without permits. And that lack of formal documentation disqualified thousands from FEMA aid. And most markets and stores were closed due to the power loss. So just getting enough to eat was a big issue for a lot of folks. Wakia tried to step in by providing the locals with simple hot meals with whatever ingredients they had on hand. It's called stone soup. Like everybody brought something and we, we just make like a soup. And that was like the first warm meal for everybody. And we started to do that every Saturday. Uh, first, it was like 50 people, and then it became 150. So what did relief efforts look like? A lot of people are still disappointed and frankly disgusted by the federal government's response. The reaction was incredibly delayed, and for many of those who did get FEMA aid, it took weeks to get those funds. And even when help finally arrived, the coordination and transport on the ground was so disorganized. At one point, there were just crates of food and other supplies sitting at the ports for days. Here at San Juan Sport, though, you can see getting supplies is not the problem. Right now, there are nearly 10,000 shipping containers just waiting to go out. These containers are filled with food, medical supplies, construction materials, anything you could buy at the pharmacy or grocery store, and some of the same items that are being rationed and that folks are waiting in lines for hours to buy. I remember this vividly. It was tragic seeing these hurricanes hit Puerto Rico. And a lot of people felt like they were purposely left to suffer by the Trump administration. How do the island's other producers fare during this disaster, Dalvin? Well, before the hurricanes, Puerto Rico wasn't very self-sufficient when it came to food. See, about 85% of its food was imported from overseas before the hurricanes. And that demand only grew in the months after the disaster. So farms of all sizes were hit hard, with around 80% of the island's crop value wiped out. Here's Marissa. It was a complete crisis, I, I have to say, especially for the main agriculture, the conventional ones, because they have just one main product. That we have a lot of farms here of bananas and plantains, and that's a very tall plant. With the winds and the water, the plants just go down. All many of the industry of milk and meat also go down. All the chicken industry goes away. The cows uh, get very affected and many of them totally dead. Wow. You know, to go from an island that's already quite dependent on imports and then have 80% of the crop value wiped out in these hurricanes, it's just devastating. It really is hard to wrap one's mind around, I think, unless you lived through it. And my friend Christine Nieves Rodriguez, she experienced Maria's landfall on the southeast side of the island, right at the point of impact. And she describes it as just basically total collapse. No water, no food, no diesel, no communication, no access to money. I mean, it was really like a bomb exploded. 
Yeah, definitely. This wasn't something that could be fixed quickly. I mean, it was it was catastrophic. Recovery was a years-long process, but in the midst of that, something interesting happened. The few agroecological farms bounced back much faster than the typical farms did. So what's a chaos, actually, for the, the conventional agricultural lease? And for the agroecology farmers, the capacity of adapt and diversify was more easy. I'm intrigued. Did you look into other farms, Dalvin? Yeah, so another agroecological farm people talk about a lot is El Hosco Bravo in the north. There was actually a story about it in the Huffington Post back in August 2018. And it's the same place where Stephanie and Marissa took that six-month workshop. The owner of the farm, Ian Pagan Roig, is a big organizing force for the island's small agroecology community. And his techniques basically saved his farm. What are some of those techniques he uses? Well, instead of clearing the trees on his land, he basically kept them where they were at, which protected the soil. And the cover crops he grew with other native plants in the area enhanced those benefits. And the trenches around the crops that he'd been digging beforehand warded off soil erosion by collecting the water from the storm surge. When other farmers saw massive runoff, Ian's fields stayed relatively healthy. And a big part of his practice is that he doesn't use any machinery. No tractors, no mowers, no harvesters, none of that. He was plowing his fields with two oxen in October, at the same time other farmers were stuck waiting in lines for hours to get fossil fuels to power their machines. And I think for the agroecology community was by far more easy because of the diversity of the that we have in the farmers that, that we have in the farm and we see it and and the capacity to adapt and help each other and we've seen this in previous disasters too for instance a 2011 study done by researchers in cuba compared the recovery of agroecological farms there to the rest of the farming community during hurricane ike in 2008 They found that after a month, the agroecological farms achieved 80% recovery and were almost fully recovered after four months, while the less adapted ones didn't reach 80% recovery until six months later. Wow, that's a remarkable statistic. And it's even more remarkable when you remember that climate change is happening now, that these disasters are going to get worse year after year, especially if we don't cut emissions. So agroecology feels like this big solution that could be replicated in many different places. Do you think that's possible? Well, it depends on what you mean by replicable. See, one of the benefits of agroecology is that it utilizes the local geography and ecosystem to optimize food production. And that's a different kind of scalability than the cut and paste conventional way of farming, where things are done the same way everywhere. But it's clear that this can be a significant climate solution if used widely. A Paris sustainability think tank looked at the issue, and they modeled what Europe's emissions would look like if agroecology was more widely adopted. So if used at scale and combined with less meat consumption, these farming practices could lead to a drop in greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture by 36 to 47 percent by 2050. So it's pretty significant. It's really interesting to me, too, that in this study, they're pairing those critical supply and demand side levers, right? That it's both really important to change what we eat, but also how we grow it. And I think it's worth underlining 
that agroecology is not just one magic farming technique. I mean, you've just been laying this out for us, Delvin. It's a lot of small things that add up to something really quite powerful. And I think we can take something as simple as compost, right? This is something most folks have seen or touched at some point. When organic waste is decomposing in a landfill, right, it generates the potent greenhouse gas methane. But through the magic of the composting process, magic is the scientific term, organic material gets converted into stable soil carbon, right? The really good stuff. That compost is really valuable fertilizer that can replace the synthetic fertilizer that most farmers are using and nix the nitrous oxide that synthetic fertilizer creates, which is yet another heat-trapping gas about 300 times more powerful than carbon dioxide. So, It's these layers upon layers of small things that become really big things. And if anyone needs a refresher on this whole carbon sources, carbon sinks situation, we did an episode on this back in season one, cleaning up the carbon mess. So go check that out if you need a little regrounding, so to speak. Yeah, and the really good news is that this type of farming can result in yields similar to conventional agriculture. And as we saw in Puerto Rico, it can be much more resilient during extreme events like floods or droughts. Things we're going to end up seeing a lot more of. It's like the only, I think it's the only agriculture that we can bounce back as easily. So it's the only type of agriculture that makes sense for us and makes sense for our lands, our soils, and for our communities. I think this is so interesting because we often think about climate solutions as, you know, new technology, wind turbines, solar panels, transmission lines, battery storage, that kind of stuff. But what's amazing about this is that these techniques, these agricultural techniques, they're not new. Agroecology is based on centuries of traditional practices that have fallen out of favor. And we learned about that in Leah Penniman's essay that we recently aired on the show. If we tapped into some of that old knowledge and wisdom and adapted it for the present day when we are all facing down the climate crisis, I think we'd be on track to shrinking a lot of our global pollution from the agricultural sector, from things like food and land use. And it's really one of our best defenses in protecting our ability to feed people in a hotter, less stable world. Right, right. And that's exactly why I reached out to Stephanie and Marissa, because they went through the most acute impacts of climate change. And in the aftermath, they see agroecology as a way to bounce back faster and guard food systems from further disasters. And so, Catherine, as I was digging into this story, I know you connected with an expert who put this kind of farming in a broader climate context for us. Yeah, I did, Dalvin. And that expert is the amazing Dr. Liz Carlisle. She is an assistant professor in the Environmental Studies Program at UC Santa Barbara. AKA, she is my fabulous colleague. Aren't I lucky? You are extremely lucky, Leah Stokes. And Liz studies regenerative farming practices, exactly the topic that we're looking at today, and the role that they can play in creating a more just and sustainable food system. I mean, the simplest way to say it is agroecology is farming with nature 
rather than in opposition to nature. It's drawing on the genius of ecosystems and evolution. Agriculture set the background of Liz's life, growing up near and around farming in Montana. She grew up hearing stories from her grandmother about how the Dust Bowl devastated the area's farmlands. She was quite honest with me at a young age about what a challenging time that was for her family and community. And I really got this sense that finding a food system that took better care of the soil was really important to not just the sustainability of the environment, but the sustainability of communities. Liz spent some time during and after college seeking out those kinds of agrarian stories that really exemplify the traditions and lifestyles of farming and ranching. And get this, she even translated a lot of those ideas into song during her stint as a country music singer-songwriter. What I miss about Montana Oh, honey, it ain't I love it. Liz has so many talents. It really is quite incredible. And we did have some moments of like singing some Tem McGraw together in this interview. (laughs) We will spare the listener. Uh, (laughs) But after releasing three albums, Liz pivoted and ended up putting her pen to use as a legislative correspondent for the office of U.S. Senator John Tester, where a big part of her role was supporting some of the Montana senator's work on agriculture. So you you literally put down the microphone and went and took up the role as an LC. <laughs> yep, that's what happened. I'm like, that is amazing. I can write. I can write, you know, country songs and, you know, constituent letters might be different, but, um, you know. But also maybe not that different. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so when Dalvin shared that he wanted to dig into this story of agroecology in Puerto Rico, I reached out to Liz to talk about where that fits as a global climate solution. And we hashed out some of the subtle and not so subtle ways our current agricultural system isn't working. I mean, I think the simplest way to look at what's wrong with the food system is that it is organized around extraction and very specifically profit. Increasingly, it's been organized around meeting the needs of the global financial system. And so more and more agricultural systems, which are, you know, people engaging with the rest of the living world, have been sort of subjugated to the logic of the stock market. (laughs) And so they're almost treated as though they were non-living widgets being traded, when in fact, you know, we're talking about living plants, animals, soils, commons like oceans and the atmosphere, which need to be dealt with, you know, according to a very different logic if they're going to survive. And of course, you know, rightfully, we put so much attention on fossil fuels as a major source of greenhouse gas pollution. But of course, carbon from soil has a lot to do with the mess that we find ourselves in as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's so helpful to kind of pan out and say, like, what are the other greenhouse gases that we need to be really concerned about, (laughs) especially in the near term? And there's a huge, you know, carbon story around agriculture, but there's also a really important story about nitrous oxide and methane, which are not as much in the public eye, you know, partly because we use carbon as kind of a shorthand for climate. But, you know, current agricultural management across most of the United States is just a nitrous oxide disaster because we're not covering the soil. 
Um, you know, we're over fertilizing to the tune of only like 50% of fertilizer is actually being taken up by plants. And so you've got all this nitrogen. It has nowhere to be absorbed into the ecosystem because there's no living roots in the ground. And so yeah. it's either going into the water supply, which isn't awesome either, or yeah, who doesn't love an <laughs> algae party, right? <laughs> or it's volatilizing into the atmosphere as this gas that is like hundreds yeah. of times more heat trapping than carbon dioxide. And in the near term is like, really, really concerning in terms of the sort of positive feedback loop of climate change. And also methane, right, which is such a huge part of the problem with industrial concentrated animal feeding operations, you know, factory farms, that animal waste is generating all this methane because it's so concentrated. And Let's kind of paint paint a picture. We talked about where the green grass grows, the rows of corn, those visuals that we have of like, well, that's a field where all the crops are lined up and they all look alike and there's some storage space or machinery warehouse somewhere and you've got a big combine running through. That is not what agroecology looks like. Can you kind of paint a bit of a a visual picture for us of what that food system looks like? You know, we've gotten so used to the idea of of the farm as kind of a standard visual form, you know, (laughs) which is kind of what it is in industrial agriculture. You have sort of a recipe that pre-exists the particular place or the particular person, and then you try to replicate that. Whereas agroecology looks different everywhere because it's based on the genius of that particular place. It's essentially an attempt to mimic the ecosystem wherever it's happening and also to serve the community and the culture wherever it's happening. Um, And so agroecology in the midst of a tropical forest, a lot of times you can't tell where the farm starts Mm. and the forest ends, you know? Mm. And that's actually a huge mistake that many Europeans made when they encountered it. They didn't even know that they were looking at a food system. Like Mayan history is amazing how people over generations and generations essentially shaped the forest until something like 80 to 90% of the plants were human useful plants that were being eaten or used as medicines or used as building materials. So, you know, in a forest, you're seeing this multi-story ecosystem in which you have vegetables, you have row crops um, like corn, but you also have fruit trees and then you have like overstory trees. And that's what it would look like in a tropical forest. But in a prairie, it would look completely different. It might look like um, bison grazing, you know, in an ecosystem where there are also medicinal plants, um, you know, in a in an area that's like seasonally swampy, um, you might have plants that sometimes grow in water and then at other times of year, you know, a corn crop that matures really quickly so that it can sort of work with the rhythms of that ecosystem. So I think agroecology always involves all this biodiversity and it mm. just looks a little bit more like what you'd expect from a natural ecosystem. Okay, so the idea here is about having a more distributed and local food system rather than something that's sort of big and homogenous. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, in order to feed a planet that will soon have 10 billion people, we need centralized agriculture to become more sustainable. But we also need distributed techniques that really heal the soil and make us less vulnerable to climate events. And agroecology is one of them. Absolutely. And Liz went on to explain just how these practices can be good for a changing climate and for a hungry world. 
I'm I'm not really a, a factoid person, but are there like stats that you really like that help people understand this is the power for carbon sequestration. This is the power for air, water quality or or quality of food. So, I mean, people cite all kinds of percentages for like how much of our greenhouse gas emissions problem can we chalk up to food and agriculture because it depends on how much of the food chain you count. But we're going to say, and I know you know this better than anybody because you've had to publish these statistics yourself. (laughs) But let's say, I mean, let's say like somewhere between a quarter and a third of greenhouse gas emissions come from the food system. And a huge chunk of that is deforestation for industrial agriculture. And then you've kind of got a pot that is related to methane emissions that mostly have to do with livestock and also with rice production. And then you've got a chunk that's nitrous oxide that has to deal with the nitrogen cycle on industrial Mm -hmm. farms, which is being fueled by all of this excess synthetic nitrogen. And the third of greenhouse gas emissions is due to that way of practicing agriculture. And if you think about like, how could agroecology bite into that? You know, I mean, if we had sort of self-supporting community food systems in the parts of the global south that are experiencing deforestation, you could take a big bite out of deforestation in a really sophisticated way, not by just like fencing people out of the forest and being like, don't cut down trees, (laughs) but actually ensuring that people had a means of livelihood and food security through a food system that was really focused on a sustainable community-based food source. And you could do so much around nitrogen. I'm a proponent of eliminating synthetic nitrogen from agriculture altogether. I think we have better sources of biological fertility. But even if you've got a farmer who's still going to use a little bit of fertilizer, if you're farming agroecologically and you've got those roots in the ground, at least you're going to be able to take up more of that synthetic nitrogen and not lose it to the atmosphere So I think we could reduce that quarter to a third of our greenhouse gas emissions that we chalk up to the food system really significantly by converting to agroecology more broadly. There are the challenges of not just trying to be part of solving the emissions problem, but surviving the climate that we have created. And I think of the things that terrify me in climate science, the anticipated yield drops for food production, like that's one that really, you know, (laughs) keeps me, keeps me up at night. How might the most climate affected areas benefit from changing course to more regenerative agroecological practices? I mean, on this one, I think it's important to recognize how did industrial farming get started? Who was it for? Which farmers did it target? One really great starting point for this is to think about Norman Borlaug in Mexico in the mid-20th century, complaining to the Rockefeller Foundation that he had to work with small farmers who had marginal land and not a lot of money, and being like, I am going to quit if you don't let me go work with the rich wheat farmers in northern Mexico who have a lot of land and are mostly U.S. expatriates because they can do my hybrid, super high-yielding grain thing because they are going to spend the money on the fertilizers, the irrigation, the herbicides that it takes to make it work. And they have the flat land and the ideal place to do it. And he won that argument because there was all this Cold War hysteria about global food insecurity turning everybody communist. 
And so the Rockefeller Foundation funded him to do that approach. And lo and behold, he did produce hybrid seeds that yielded crazy, you know, wheat yields when you soaked them with fertilizer and gave them herbicides and babied them. And they had just the right amount of irrigation. They knew they were on the flat land. And so industrial agriculture is a system for producing the highest possible yields under ideal conditions. That's what it is. And most of the world's people do not have those ideal conditions. I mean, I think what has so impressed me about this agroecological revolution in Puerto Rico is people are saying, you know, it's not, the goal is not the highest possible yields under ideal conditions. The goal is a stable community food source under a whole range of conditions that we're actually going to face. So what I'm hearing Liz saying is that the dominant agricultural system, which really hasn't been around that long and has been very dependent on fossil fuels, that system has some major weaknesses. And it's unlikely to fare very well under the climate crisis. By contrast, a lot of these agroecology ideas that come out of older traditions, they are the climate solutions that we're looking for, not just on the resilience side that they can hold up against these disasters, but also on that mitigation side, that they aren't going to be contributing to the climate problem nearly as much as the dominant industrial agricultural system. I think that's exactly right. And As we look at the need to cut our global emissions in half this decade, these are low-hanging fruits. In some cases, we are actually growing fruits. But unlike (laughs) areas like steel or cement or air travel, parts of the economy that are, we still don't know really how we're going to decarbonize them. This, the answers are in front of us. We just have to figure out how to support these practices at scale going forward and really support people like Stephanie and Marissa who are seeing the incredible value that they hold. And that's where Liz really ended it, back in Puerto Rico. So Dalvin, back to you and your reporting. How did all this play out for Stephanie and Marissa? Well, the trash is long gone and the farm is actually back up and running. They've weathered a lot in the last couple of years, including a string of earthquakes that hit Puerto Rico at the end of 2019. But they've managed to power through, and in one season, they've harvested almost 1,400 pounds of food. See, along with the climate angle, the thing that really drew me to the story was just the cooperation among the farms. Building community with other farmers and with all the people who eat the food they grow is vital to the agroecology movement. Wakia and all these other farms really showed up for the community at a really difficult moment, even when they took a huge hit themselves. Here's Stephanie. Yeah, we just basically started to walk in the community like, hey, how are you? Hey, we're the neighbors, the farmers right there. How are you guys? Let's make a soup or let's make food for everybody. Let's just, it was more to hear ourselves as well, to see how everybody was, to like cry if you needed to cry. They even go so far as to buy and share equipment with each other. And they also share their experiences with other conventional farms. In fact, one neighboring farmer who started out as a doubter now is actually pretty impressed with their operations. He's kind of like this big uncle for us, I could say, because he like he looks out for us. 
he sometimes he's like, oh, you're going to grow that plantain with that corn and with those beans and that doesn't match up. What are you doing? Why are you doing those types of uh, crops together? And then when he comes months later and he sees all that with uh, looking all vibrant, he like he gets proud of us and then he invites people like him by himself. He brings his friends to see our farm instead of his farm. So you can see like how he like, oh, look what these crazy kids are doing, like this agroecology <laughs> stuff. And we collaborated with him and he collaborated with us and we exchange information and education and he has started to understand what we are doing and why it's important and how he can change his mind of doing agriculture. So that's the way what we do. We just talk to each other. We say that Puerto Rico is a twin matres. We can we can know each other very easy. It's a it's a small island. I love that this uncle figure, this neighboring farmer, is bringing people over to Stephanie and Marissa's farm rather than his own. That's pretty funny. But I'm still wondering, Dalvin, if this is so resilient and it's such a vital climate solution, what's preventing it from expanding to more farms and more places? Well, it comes down to the systemic problems that slow any other climate solution. There's no incentive structures or meaningful investment from the government. And without a clear set of policies, like the ones that send billions of dollars to fossil fuel-based conventional agriculture in Puerto Rico and all across the U.S., farmers don't really have much reason to change their operations. It's not that it can't scale, it's that we failed to put the system in place to support it. I think that word support is so critical. And Liz acknowledged the role that government can play in accelerating agroecology. Again, not with some newfangled innovation, but basically by using tweaked versions of the policies that we've had in place for decades. The federal government could use those and encourage more sustainable practices and actually in the process address deeply ingrained inequities that exist in the agricultural system overall. We have this legacy of direct payments that used to be made for farmers based on their base acres in one of a handful of commodities. And, you know, that program probably made some sense coming out of the Depression to just try to lift people out of extreme poverty. Mm. But we can target that program better, not just by shifting it over to crop subsidies, which is what we've done. So if you have a giant corn or soy farm, now you get these crop subsidies. You know, insurance is what it's supposed to be, but it basically just kind of props that system up. Instead, we should target those payments. You know, I think we should we should shift our, our public funding in agriculture, mm -hmm. um, particularly the farm bill, so that we're in a more targeted way aligning public investment in agriculture with public goods in agriculture and the yeah. public interest in agriculture. And I think a great example of how we could do that is to, you know, actually pay farmers to do things like plant soil building cover crops, because that has a clear public benefit as well as a benefit to the farm. You know, there's a lot of other ways in which I think government could get involved. Land transfer, I think, is a huge one. I've been really, really excited by, you know, some of the legislation that Cory Booker and others have put forward to have governments purchase land from retiring farmers mm. and then make it available in affordable ways to aspiring farmers, to farmers of color who've been left out of land ownership, yeah. you know, which agricultural land ownership is 98% white. 
And land ownership is just such a huge barrier to agroecology. Stephanie and Marissa have been rejected whenever they've tried getting grants or any other support from the government for their farm. It's pretty unfair, but it hasn't stopped them. They're still fully committed to their mission. Even if the government isn't backing them and all the benefits they provide, Stephanie and Marissa are still working to change the system one visitor and one neighboring farmer at a time. The key is to bring the kids and the kids bring the parents and that's how it all we all fall in love with the agroecology and the farms. I didn't come from farming uh, from a farming family or from a farming background, and I can see it as well in my family how they're already making changes, and they're calling me to say, "Oh, I'm going to this market." Or I I started to see in the supermarket nothing's from Puerto Rico. What is going on here? So yeah, I think it it not only makes an impact on the people we're trying to sell, but also our people like in our whole backgrounds, in our relationships, our friends and stuff. I think that is the big aspect that we are doing here in in Guaquia is changing mindset. And I think it's very important. And it's not just us. I think every agroecology farmer is doing the same. It's changing the way that we see the food and how we are related to them and to the ecosystem at the same time. Dalvin, thanks so much for bringing us this story. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was really cool to be on. Dalvin Abuaji is a producer for our show. A Matter of Degrees is co-hosted by me, Dr. Leah Stokes. And me, Dr. Katherine Wilkinson. We are a production of Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. Alongside Dalvin, Jamie Kaiser, and Daniel Waldorf produced the show. Stephen Lacey is our executive editor. Sean Marquand edited, mixed, and composed our theme song. Additional music came from Blue Dot Sessions. Emma Swanson provided fact-checking. The show art was designed by Carl Spurzum. Our website was designed by Caroline Hadalak-Sono. Thanks to our funders and supporters who make this show possible. The Sunrise Project, Northlight Foundation, McKnight Foundation, Bloomberg Philanthropies, The 11th Hour Project, and UC Santa Barbara, home of the great Liz Carlisle. <laughs> and if you're digging the show, or just Liz Carlisle, please hop on Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and leave a review. And come back soon as we tell more stories for the climate curious. <laughs> My students came up with an acronym GTS because I would tell them Google that shit. <laughs>